In verse 31, where we left off, on that very day, some Pharisees came to him, came saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Back in the fourth century, there was a man who stood up to a leader, much like Jesus stands up here to Herod. And gives a message to Herod. This man was named Athanasius in the 4th century. And he stood up against a, an upcoming and very prevalent heresy. False teaching. The false teaching was spawned by a guy by the name of Arius. Called the Arian heresy. And it was the, basically the, uh, the, the seeds of Jehovah Witness doctrine. That Jesus is not God. There is no trinity. And Jesus is not divine. And the council at which he met Arius in and the rest of Arius' followers was a meeting in which Athanasius had a small group and he was outnumbered by the followers of Arius. And one of the friends of Athanasius whispered to him, he said, there are so many of them and so few of us. It seems like they're all against you. And Athanasius said to his friend, if the world goes against the truth, then Athanasius goes against the world. And he stood up and stood his ground and defended the church in the 4th century against the Arian heresy. There have been many encounters like that. Back in the 2nd century A.D., there was a governor of Asia called Pliny, Pliny the Younger. And Pliny had what he called the Christian problem. The Christian problem, he called it, and he wrote a letter to Trajan the emperor and said, I've got a real problem. I'm trying to govern according to the dictates of Rome, but there are these Christians who swear allegiance to another king. And Trajan wrote him back and said, hey, be as tolerant as you possibly can to them. Uh, don't go out of your way to persecute them, but you know, let them know who's boss, that Caesar and Rome is the boss. And so there was a Christian that was brought before Pliny who refused to bow to the Roman deities and he was threatened by Pliny. Pliny said to him, I will banish you to the wilderness away from civilization. The Christian said, you can't do that for the world is my father's house said, then I'll slay you. He said, you can't do that either. For my life is hidden with Christ and God. And after I die, I'll live with him forever. He said, then I'll take away your treasures, all your possessions. He said, you can't do that either. I have treasures in heaven that far exceed yours. And on and on went the threats, but this Christian stood up and Pliny had on his hands what he called the Christian problem. Christians who were willing to stand up to tyrants. Immovable. 
And here we see Jesus coming to Herod and standing up. By the way, there was another man, very famous during the reign of King Henry VIII, named Bishop Hugh Latimer. What a great guy he was. Henry VIII demanded that Hugh Latimer preach a sermon one Sunday. Before all of the royal court, they were all gathered. The king was seated upon his throne with pomp and glory and royal robes. And Hugh Latimer preached a sermon that offended King Henry VIII. And being a man of pride, being a despotic kind of a ruler, he demanded a formal apology by Bishop Latimer the next Sunday in front of the same crowd when he was to preach a sermon of apology. So the next Sunday came and the royal court was seated and the audience was seated and they were all wondering what this bishop would say and how he would say it. And Bishop Hugh Latimer began his message as if he was speaking directly to himself. He said, Hugh Latimer, consider in whose presence you are the presence of the great King Henry VIII who has the power to take your life. Then he went on, but consider also whose word you are to proclaim the great king of kings and God of all gods who is able to cast body and soul into hell and make sure that you are faithful to his word. And then he preached the exact same sermon he preached the week before with more fervor than he preached the week before. And afterwards, King Henry VIII went up to him and said, how dare you? He said, I'll tell you how dare I. I've got another king that outweighs you, of whom I and you must give an account. And you can kill me, but you cannot kill me forever. And one day you're going to stand judgment before him. And he didn't back down. And actually, the king commended him for his boldness, though he was still ticked off at what he said. Now, here's a Pharisee that comes to Jesus, and I find it interesting, first of all, that a Pharisee is even interested in the welfare of Jesus Christ and comes to warn Jesus. The sworn enemies of Jesus Christ and his followers were the Pharisees because of Jesus' stand against traditionalism. But a Pharisee warns him that Herod is seeking that he might kill him. And Jesus said to him, go tell that fox... A fox to a Jew was a cunning but a weak creature. This was a chop. A cunning but a weak creature. Go tell that cunning, weak ruler. I don't have time for him, basically. I've got my father's work to do. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Rather than being drawn in by the greatness of Herod or being intimidated by his greatness, he didn't say, whoa, I get to meet with Herod? You know, he's pretty famous. He didn't even take time. He just said, go tell that fox I'm busy. God is never impressed nor intimidated by great human rulers. We are. We're impressed by people's greatness. We're impressed by their credentials. We're intimidated by them. I don't know if you've ever been in the presence of a famous person, but when you are, it's kind of a little bit unnerving. And in one sense, you realize, okay, they're a human just like me, but this is kind of a special human. 
And we might say dumb things, or we might say things that we wish we could take back. There was a story I read about of a woman who was up on Canyon Drive in Santa Fe in an ice cream shop, and Robert Redford walked in. She was beside herself. This was her favorite actor. And she bought ice cream and, you know, looked around really intimidated, and and she left the ice cream store. And as she was halfway down the street, she realized that she didn't have her cone that she paid for. So she went back to the ice cream shop, and she said to the person at the counter, she said, Excuse me, sir, but I paid for an ice cream cone. Uh, I, I don't have it. I don't know what became of it. Robert Redford, who was there witnessing the whole thing, said, Ma'am, I think you'll find it where you left it, in your purse. <laughs> Poor gal. So intimidated by Robert Redford watching this whole thing, she stuck the ice cream cone in her purse. I've been in places like Washington, D.C., and the first time I was there, I actually was awed and struck by the power that I sensed and felt in that place. I was at the National Prayer Breakfast. I'd been there a few times, but the first time I went, you know, these were dignitaries, some of them from other parts of the world, and I was sitting next to Amelda Marcos. And I'll tell you, I tried not to, but I did glance down at her shoes for a moment. <laughs> And I met her, but it was a little unnerving. Herod was known and respected by all of those in Galilee. He was known by all of the people in Israel. You might think, what an opportunity Jesus had. But Jesus knew what he was called to do, and he was on the way to Jerusalem. He had a timetable. In fact, keep that in the back of your mind. He was on a timetable of 173,880 days, an exact timetable when he had to be in Jerusalem for a very important date. Keep that in your mind, and we'll get to that when we are a few chapters ahead. So he's on his way. Then he gets to Jerusalem, verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. You might say this is the greatest possibility and at the same time the greatest tragedy. The greatest possibility. How often, Jerusalem, I wanted to be like a hen, protecting you, gathering you, nurturing you. Jesus loved Jerusalem. Jesus loved the Jewish people. Since he was a boy, he traveled there three times a year for the great feasts of Passover and Pentecost and Tabernacle. But the greatest tragedy, but you were not willing This is rejected love. Nothing hurts more than to have love flow in one direction. To have love flow but not be returned nor reciprocated. To love but have no response. To love but to be rejected for that love. Here Jesus loves the people. He came to his own. His own received him not. And in a great lament over the city that was meant to be the light of the world as the Jews were to shine the light of God around the world, he laments over it. 
how often. I was willing, but you were not willing. The lament comes from seeing the consequence of this nation spurning the love of Jesus Christ. Rejecting the Messiah meant more than just a temporary bad condition. It meant being cut off and cast off. First of all, in verse 35, Jesus says, See or behold, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In seeing the nation forsaking their Messiah, he foresaw the day when they were closing the door of God's mercy and God would forsake the nation. He looked ahead to 66 AD when Vespasian and his son Titus came in. And four years later, 70 AD, when the temple, the house, that's what he's speaking about, the temple, was left desolate, empty. There were no sacrifices. The sacrifices stopped. The temple was destroyed. The people were killed. The rest of them were taken captive. He saw that. And it did happen. It's something we'll get to later on. We mentioned it last week. This is a theme that sort of runs through these chapters now as Jesus moves to Jerusalem. He sees what Jerusalem is facing. We mentioned last time that Titus came in with his legions, burned the temple, took the gold that had melted to the cracks. The house was left desolate. Now, if you go to Rome today and you are near the Colosseum between the uh, jail, the prison where Paul was at, and the Colosseum is a long colonnade and an arch in perfect shape called the Arch of Titus. Titus had it erected when he came back from what Jesus predicted. When the temple was destroyed and the temple furnishings were confiscated and the people were killed or taken captive, Titus came and had a huge victory march to the streets of Rome. And this huge arch, the Arch of Titus, was erected. And today you can see on the Arch of Titus the depiction of the Jews carrying the spoils of the temple for the Romans. There's a picture of the Jews in chains and in ropes. There's a picture of the menorah, the seven golden candlestick, uh, the seven branch candlestick, and some of the incense shovels being taken back to Rome. And it's a whole depiction in relief upon stone of the house of Jerusalem becoming desolate. Now, since that time, the sacrifice has ceased. And there is no more sacrifice for a Jew today to be able to look back to or to trust in for his sins being washed away. Yet the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Jesus came as the final sacrifice. They rejected the sacrifice. The temple was left desolate. And there is no sacrifice for sin. And Jesus said, you won't see me till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which will be in the seven-year tribulation when Jesus comes the second time the Jewish nation is converted. Now it happened as he went into the house of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. And he took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered and he said, Which of you having a donkey 
or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day, and they could not answer him regarding these things. And so he told them a parable. There are six parables in chapter 14 of Luke, five of which are mentioned nowhere else. And so they're important parables because you're not going to find them in any of the other of the synoptic gospels, Matthew or Mark. You're not going to find them in John. They're particular, peculiar to Luke. It's a chapter of what you might call table talk, basically. It's centered around feasts. It's centered around meals that Jesus has after this incident. One of the parables, the very last of the salt losing its savor, is something that Jesus mentions on another occasion. But Jesus gives a different twist to it at this point. So we want to get into it. Now, we've discussed parables in the past, but suffice it to say that Jesus used parables to reveal truth in a way people could understand it. I think we all realize that God has condescended to our level by giving us revelation. God transcends man. And so God speaks to man in familiar language so that men of all ages can grasp who God is, what God is all about. He condescends, and Jesus used parables to reveal the truth in a very simple way for us. The word parable is a word that is used in the Gospels 48 times. It's the Greek term parabole, and it simply means to cast, to throw something next to something else. And the idea is that Jesus took an earthly picture and cast it alongside a heavenly truth. So that by looking at the earthly picture, we might understand the heavenly truth. He takes something familiar to the common person and casts it alongside a heavenly truth. Jesus wants people to understand God. That's why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I have come to fully reveal who God is. I got some letters uh, not too long ago. These are my favorite letters. They're from kids. They're from fourth graders. And there are questions about God. It begins by saying uh, they have to fill this in. I like best about Calvary. They fill it out. I like the song. They fill that out. One thing I wonder about God is, and so this person says, I like best about Calvary, meeting people and making friends. I like the song, Behold the Lamb. One thing I wonder about God is, what does he do? <laughs> this person writes, I like best about Calvary, Learning about Jesus. I love the song, I Love Jesus. One thing I wonder about God is, where did he come from? Joshua wrote, I like best about Calvary, the slide outside. <laughs> See, this is what I love about kids. They are very honest, no pretense. Well, Josh, I like the slide too. It's one of my favorite things about Calvary. I like the song, King of Kings. One thing I wonder about God is, is he a boy or a girl? <laughs> Bethany wrote, I like best about Calvary learning. I like the song, God is an awesome God. 
One thing I wonder about God is where he lived. Where he lived. This person says, and actually most of them, most of the questions were like this. I like best about Calvary, make, uh, meeting new people. The song I like the best is Our God is an Awesome God. One thing I wonder about God is, what does he look like? Now that's a common question that kids ask. What does God look like? This person says, the one thing I wonder about God is, how tall is God? How tall is God? Questions that people have had through centuries, from childhood to adulthood. Some very simple questions, some very complex, philosophical wonderings, ponderings, postulates about God. Jesus came to reveal the Father. In reading the Gospels and in watching Jesus and listening to Jesus, we're able to hear and see the things that God loves, the things that displease God, what the kingdom of God is like. And we're able to see that multifaceted personality of God by seeing Jesus. So Jesus speaks in parables. On a significant occasion when the enemies of Jesus were coming against him. And so we get into these six parables um, based upon what we're reading in the first part of this chapter. And all parables have a very pretty straightforward and simple meaning. You can attach odd meanings to them, but you don't need to and you shouldn't. It's a very simple, usually one lesson meaning. Okay, it happened. As he went into the house of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. How would you like to be invited over to somebody's house just to be spied on? That's why Jesus was invited. They didn't invite him because he was an honored guest. They wanted to see, and probably they planted this guy because they knew Jesus is compassionate and cannot remain still when confronted with human problems and illness. He has to heal people. Knowing it's the Sabbath, knowing Jesus would be inclined to heal this man with dropsy, they probably planted him there. Which shows they don't love God nor his people. They're using this man's suffering to incite the compassion of Jesus to see if he'd break a law. Now the Sabbath was and is one of the most important center points of Judaism. Begins Friday evening, continues all day Saturday to Saturday evening. It began when God created the world. That's the precedent for it. God said, look, I created the earth in six days. On the seventh day, it was over. I rested. That is the pattern that I have set for you. Work six days and hang loose the seventh. It was really rekindled in the wilderness. In the book of Exodus, they're wandering through the desert, and God lets manna fall from heaven. They didn't know what it is, so they called it, what is it? That's what manna means, what is it? And so what is it came from heaven, and God said, go pick up that what is it. Six days. Pick up twice as much on the seventh day, sixth day, for the seventh day. Don't pick up any on the seventh day, thanks. Otherwise, it will rot. And if they were to try to pick up any on the seventh day, God would kill them. So, you know, it was a good incentive to stay home. God said, on the seventh day, you will do no work, you will kindle no fire, and you'll even let your sheep and your beast of burden have a day off. You won't work them. You'll let them hang loose as well. 
It was intended to be a day of rest. By the time of the New Testament, there were 24 chapters in the Talmud. The Jewish commentaries by the rabbis about what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. They made a day of rest difficult to keep. It was harder to rest because you had to memorize all those things and wonder if you're doing something wrong or right than it was to work. So the Sabbath had become a burden rather than a day of rest. And it was a time when it seemed that animal life was more important than human life. And so Jesus asked a basic tenant question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They kept silent. Now it says, Jesus took him and healed him, and notice, let him go. Good move. Not letting him stay around, these who had perverted the law, maybe he would get persecuted if he stayed around. Just said, get out of here. You're healed? Now go away from these people. And he answered them, saying, which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day. This would be like having a flat tire. The donkey was a beast of burden. The ox was also a beast of burden. And if you needed to get around or you needed something for uh, your work, which was the, this animal, if he was stuck, you'd help him. It would be like saying, which of you, if your donkey or ox has a flat tire, your car has a flat tire, wouldn't you fix it on the Sabbath? It's a necessity. All right, in the same manner, this man has had a flat tire in life, so to speak, and I'm going to fix him. Here you would give deference to an animal, but you say that it's unlawful to heal a human being on the Sabbath day. That's why they kept silent. He knew, they knew, that they were busted. You notice something about Jesus. He knows the hearts of people that he's around. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what they're up to. He knew what they were up to. He wasn't sitting around going, oh, great, I get a free meal. He knew that their hearts were wicked. He knew that this was a trap. And he knew what they were thinking. Be a little bit intimidating, wouldn't it, to eat lunch with somebody that knows everything you're thinking while you're with that person or what you thought the day before or the night before. Or to travel, to go on the road with somebody who knows what you're thinking all the time. As the disciples were realizing who this was they were following, I'm sure they just... That's why John said, That which is from the beginning, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have handled, the word of life, him declare we unto you. So it must have blown their mind as they realized who they were with. They could not answer him regarding these things, and so he spoke. He told a parabole, a story to reveal a heavenly meaning, to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places. Did you follow that? They're watching Jesus, but Jesus is taking note of them. He's at the feast, and he's just watching people. Now, there were no place cards in those days when you'd have a feast. Your name was imprinted on a plate. And when the chef would say, soup's on, or the meal is now about to begin, when the formal announcement came, there was often a rush 
for the best seats. Seating was not on chairs like you have tonight or like I have tonight. Uh, It was not like a modern table and chair setting. The way of eating was at a triclinium, a Roman triclinium. It was a It's an excellent way to eat, guys. I prefer it. You lie on your side. You lay down. And so, you know, it's the best way to eat because the way your stomach is shaped with your duodenum at the bottom part, the way it curves. And in fact, if you ever go to a hospital and have an upper GI, they will often fill your stomach with barium and then they'll have you lie on your right side so that it'll fill your duodenum and small intestine. It'll empty. You're putting pressure on that sphincter. So to eat like that, hey, that's the way to do it. And you have a long, leisurely meal. Well, there were four of these seats. It was done in a square with a table in the middle. And at each section of the triclinium was a chief seat for the big dogs. Problem is that nobody knew who the big dogs were. They just sort of thought they were. (laughs) And the best seat meant that you had social status. Sort of like the executive who has the office next to the president of the company. Ooh, a little more important. Jesus noticed that. And he said, when you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place. Now, he said this after they did it. Lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you And him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be abased and he who humbles himself will be exalted. These guys exalted themselves and wanted a high position among their peers. Now, would you admit that we have the same problem today? Being humans, we want to be recognized. Whether it's in the world or in the church. There are some people who so want to be recognized in the church, you know, they want to be in charge of their little group. They want the recognition before the rest of the church of their little group. And if their little group or they're not recognized, they'll be going elsewhere to a place where they will be recognized. They want the chief seats. They care about the reputation. Jesus cared about the character. Now, again, imagine how these guys felt. They already went for the best seats. And Jesus said, you know, when you're invited, you shouldn't go sit at the best seats. Because you might be ashamed by the person who puts you in your place. He ends up by saying, whoever exalts himself will be abased. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. God is not impressed with important people. God is not impressed like we are impressed. Sometime go through some old magazines or old almanacs, old encyclopedias. And see how many people you've never heard of who were once really famous. Yesterday's hero is today's forgotten hero. So, you know, you can be famous for a short time and sort of like a firecracker going up on the 4th of July for that short burst of time as you 
expand in the sky, people will go, ooh, ah. The writer of Daniel, Daniel, said, those who lead many to righteousness are like the stars that shine forever and ever. Would you rather be a firework that gives a loud burst and people go, ooh, ah, for just a couple seconds? Or after the 4th of July, try this sometime. Go out after the fireworks have ended and look at those stars that were there yesterday and last year and years ago and will be there tomorrow. Would you rather be a little firework? Ooh, they were impressed with me. Or something that shines perpetually. Then he also said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner or supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. The idea is that these people can't pay you back. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So far, this is a tense meal. They invite Jesus to spy on him. Jesus sort of commandeers the whole thing, gives him a message, and rebukes the people who are sitting at the wrong places and the guy who gives the feast. Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. This is what I think is happening. I think after Jesus said what he said, there's a moment of silence. It's a little bit awkward. He rebukes them. He rebukes the guy at the feast. They're not saying much. And in that moment of awkward silence, somebody speaks out. And I think it was sort of done in a pious kind of a tone. Blessed is he who eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, he uses that to get into another parable. Now, what he said is true. Blessed is anybody who's going to be with God forever in his kingdom and eat at the feast. But my tendency is to think that this is a pious platitude, just by Jesus' response. There's a lot of pious platitudes. There's a lot of people who say, oh, praise the Lord. And it's just something because it draws attention to themselves. Hey, if you say it and you mean it, great. But don't use it as a vain repetition. There's a lot of things we can say or do when we're around other believers so that people will look at us and then the attention is drawn to us and off of God and people look at us and they think, this person must be really spiritual. And instead of focusing on God, they're now looking at you. Blessed is he! Now, i got to also tell you that the way the Jews looked to the future, they thought of the future kingdom as like a big feast where Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all the patriarchs would be there. And the invited guests, the guests of honor, would be the prophets. They saw the kingdom of God as all of God's faithful in the past gathering together for a great feast. This guy, the way he says it, it sounds like he's confident he's going to be there eating with them. Maybe a little too overconfident that he's going to be there with him. Oh, blessed is he who eats like all these patriarchs will eat, myself included. And so Jesus says, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. 
The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife, therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and there is still room. The master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who are invited shall taste my supper. Ancient suppers had two invitations. First of all, one in advance. And it was an RSVP. You would agree to it in advance. These are people who knew the invitation, had gone out, and they agreed to show up at a certain day at the supper. Then there was always a second invitation when the feast was announced. So they would gather together, but they didn't know the exact hour. When the exact hour was announced, those who had already said they would come were then supposed to come in. That's the great supper that Jesus is referring to. However, there are several excuses to this one by the guests who have said, yeah, I'll be there. And that's exactly what these are, excuses. Excuses, well, somebody called, in fact, Billy Sunday said, an excuse is the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. I think that's a great definition of an excuse. The skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. And these are lame excuses. Worthless excuses, as we'll see. So anyway, he sent his servant in verse 17, saying, Come, for all things are ready. This has primary application to the Jewish nation. The prophets proclaimed, the Messiah is coming. Get ready. He was predicted throughout the Old Testament. John the Baptist also came as the last Old Testament prophet and said, Make straight the ways of the Lord. Get ready. But they rejected the offers throughout history. They rejected the offers of John the Baptist. They rejected Jesus Christ and ignored the invitation. So, the invitation went out to the Jews, those in Judea, Jerusalem, and Israel. There comes a time in church history when the emphasis goes off of Jewish evangelism and on to anybody who will come, those in the hedges, the Gentiles. When that turning point comes is when? The book of Acts, chapter 13. Every place Paul goes, where does he go first? Synagogues. That's his pattern. He always went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. That's why he wrote to the Romans and he said, this gospel is to the Jew first and then also to the Greek or to the Gentile. So his pattern was always go and speak to the Jewish people. Well, he was in Antioch of Pisidia one day and he shared a gospel message. He was just sitting in the synagogue hanging out and the uh, chief of the synagogue said, is there somebody who'd like to share something? Paul said, I would. 
got up and he gave a long message about the plan of God through Jewish history and God sending his son, the Messiah. A lot of people responded to him that day, Jews and non-Jews who were listening from afar. And afterwards, they talked to him and Paul and Barnabas said, continue in the ways of the Lord. Keep following him. Well, the next day, when Paul and Barnabas gathered again, the scripture says almost the whole city of Antioch and Pisidia was gathered to hear the message. And it says when the Jews saw the crowds, they were so jealous that they blasphemed and accused and brought in all sorts of false witnesses. And we read that Paul and Barnabas became bold and said, it was necessary that the gospel be preached to you first. But because you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we now turn to the Gentiles. And that marked a whole new page that was open where they would go out into the hedges, the byways, the highways, and ask anyone, anyone, whosoever will, let him come. And now the gospel is for everyone. The grace of God is for Jew and Gentile alike. Anyone who will come can come. But here we see what happened historically to this nation. The invitations went out. Verse 18 is the first excuse, the excuse of possessions. The first said, I have bought a piece of ground and I've got to go see it. Now, what person in his right mind would buy a piece of land without seeing it. What I know of the Jewish people, not one of them. They're shrewd businessmen, very gifted, I think, by God in business. What an excuse. It's a lame excuse. Besides that, it's nighttime. The feast that Jesus referred to was an evening feast. Oh, I can't come. I, gotta, I bought some land. I, I've got to go see it. You've got to go see it. It's nightfall. Even a cursory glance isn't going to get much of a, of a view of it. It was a lame excuse. Second excuse, the excuse of business. The other said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to go test them. I ask you, have me excused. Now, again, that's a lame excuse. You haven't test-driven the oxen that you bought? Would you buy a car without test driving it? I wouldn't. I want to be in that baby. I want to see how that thing pushes up a hill, goes around the corners. Hey, I just bought a new car. I got to go test drive. Now keep in mind, they didn't have floodlights in those days. It's, it's nighttime. I'm going to go test drive the oxen. It was the excuse of business. And people still make excuses like this today. Oh, I love to fellowship and come to church on Sunday, but you see, I'm very busy. I've got to make a living. The next excuse, the excuse in relationships. Another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Now, we know the Jewish law made anybody who was newly married exempt from what? Military service. Military service. For a year, you didn't fight. If a war came in Israel and you just got married, they'd go home. You know, you might go to war and get killed. It's not fair. So at least you have a year off where you can nurture the relationship. But that doesn't make you exempt from food. <laughs> Especially a feast that you have said that you'd come to. Besides that, it kind of gives you insight into some husbands. 
An invitation to a husband who is married implied you bring your wife with you. He goes, oh, I can't come. I'm married. Well, don't come alone. You both come. Give her a night out, man. She deserves it, being married to somebody with that attitude especially. But there are people with that excuse. Oh, Sunday's the only day I have with my family. Bring them. Worship with them. Do it with them. Fellowship. Lead them in the ways of the Lord. So that servant came and reported to his master. And then the master of the house, being angry, we don't read much about God's anger, but we read about it here in a parable form, said to the servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the maimed, the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and there is still room. All of these excuses, all of these excuses. Now, I heard of a man who got up Sunday morning. He and his wife were accustomed to getting dressed together and going to church. But this particular Sunday morning, his wife got up and she was dressed, ready to go, and he was lounging around in bed. She said, honey, get up. He goes, no, I don't want to go to church today. She said, why? He said, well, I'll tell you why. First of all, the congregation is cold and uncaring. Second of all, they don't like me. Third of all, I just don't want to go. Can you give me reasons why I should? She said, yes. Number one, the congregation is warm and friendly. Number two, there's a few people who like you. And number three, you're the pastor. <laughs> so get up. Reasons why they should come, why the Jews should come, because they were God's covenant people invited before anybody else was invited. They had precedence in the feast. Because they had a covenant with God in the Old Testament, in a sense, they agreed to come, agreed to watch for the Messiah. When the day of the feast came, they rejected the offer. And so God has reached out graciously beyond the boundaries of Judaism to anyone who will come, Jew or Gentile alike. Verse 23, And the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Now I've got to let you in on a little black mark in church history, a little secret about church history. There were some theologians like St. Augustine who took that verse to imply that persecution of other religions was acceptable. And with this verse, he and others justified the Inquisition and the Crusades. You compel them to come. You force them to come, even if they don't want to. You subject them by military force to do what you think God wants them to do. And that's not what the verse is implying in context. It's the invitation that has gone out that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of these men who are invited shall taste of my supper. Why were they excluded? Because they refused to come. Why didn't they come? Because they rejected Jesus Christ. Why are people excluded from heaven today? Because they, they refuse to come. That's why. 
People go to hell today and have always and will always simply for the reason that they choose to go there by refusing God's offer. God will honor a choice. It'd be foolish for God to give people a freedom of choice and then as soon as they choose it, say, nope, you can't choose that. God will honor the choice that you make. That's part of volition. Because they refused. None of those men who were invited, and it's implied because of their refusal, shall taste my supper. And great multitudes went with him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, yes, and his own life also, cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Which of you intending to build a tower and does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he is enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build but was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So, likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus was never impressed with lots of people, i.e. the multitudes that followed him. Because a lot of times the people in the great throngs, the assemblies, the multitudes that followed, were not interested in spiritual things. They were interested in Jesus giving them a free meal or watching a demonstration of his power or getting some disease they had healed. That's the purpose many of them followed him. And again, Jesus knew why people followed him. Remember in John chapter 2 at the feast in Jerusalem, the Passover, it says many believed in Jesus when they saw the signs and miracles which he did. The text then says, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew what was in man. And he had no need of anyone to testify of man, for he knew the heart of man. God, Jesus, knew why people came, and he saw this multitude, and he wasn't impressed. He didn't go, oh, look how big my church is. Isn't this awesome? How many, uh, how many are you running on Sunday morning? That was not, Jesus didn't care. And Jesus deliberately speaks a message, I think, to thin out the ranks. Instead of saying, let's have a church growth seminar and come up with newfangled tactics to bring them in, Jesus saw that people were coming for the wrong motives. He thought, let's thin them out. And it worked. If you compare this with the other Gospels, especially the sixth chapter of John and the time when Jesus here is approaching Jerusalem, we see that there was a thinning out of the ranks. So he says, if anyone comes after me, does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brother, sisters. Yes, his own life cannot be my disciple. In the East, language is vivid. And the idea here is not that you should sit and figure out ways to hate people. The idea is that your love for Jesus Christ should be so much, should be so high, that in comparison, your love for anybody else would almost be like hatred. 
It's a comparative kind of a love. That's the language that he uses. Even the original language, that is implied. The idea is you love God so much so that you love him more than anyone or anything else. And you serve him more. Now, I think this is right on the heels. I know it's right on the heels. We just read it of a guy who's saying, I can't. I've married a wife. We had to love God more than anyone in our family. There are people who are afraid to come to Jesus Christ, husbands and wives, because they fear what would happen if they make that commitment. It might cause a disruption in their marriage. Children are afraid to make commitments because of the disruption it would cause with mom and dad. And I can relate with that. The second part, the mom and dad part. But we must always love Jesus more than anyone or anything else. You may want to read the story of John Bunyan sometime, the guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He was persecuted in England, and he was warned to stop preaching, or he would be thrown in prison, which meant his family was already destitute. He barely made any money, and that means that they would be without anything to survive on at all. When he was in prison, he wrote, and he said, The cries and, and, and what I see in my mind, I picture my wife and my children, especially that blind child that I have, crying out to me. And I'm unable to send them any support, and I know the suffering that they will incur because of my preaching in the gospel. But on the other hand, all I can hear, as far as the voice of God is concerned, is you must do it. And he said, I must do it. I must preach the gospel. What a commitment. He loved his family, but in comparison to his love for Jesus Christ, it was like hatred. And probably some would look at that and say, that's not fair, that's horrible. But he did love his family. And what Jesus is talking about is counting the cost. That's how he really finishes out the chapter. He's wanting to fill his father's house, but there's a counting of the cost. Like a king who would make war, or like a man who would build a tower, making sure that he could finish it. And the salt and the last part of that will save for next week. But I had no idea the time has gone by so far. I just thought we'd been here about 15, 20 minutes. And we haven't, so we'll stop with that. Father, we thank you tonight for the opportunity that you have given to us, a very unique opportunity to fellowship over the one thing that counts the most, the Word of God, the Word of Truth, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Though there are differences among us, there are certain things that remain the same. We are all sinners by nature and by choice. And we have received Jesus as our Lord and Savior and our sins are washed away. Therefore, we're at the same exact level before the foot of the cross. Therefore, we are brothers and sisters in a very dynamic way. And I pray, Lord, that we would live like that. I pray, Lord, that you would embolden us to invite everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, to partake of your feast. I pray, Lord, that we would treat people with such love that we wouldn't 
do things for them so that they'd pay us back or that we would have some favor from them, that we would treat especially the downcast and the poor in high favor. Lord, I pray that we would have a burning desire to see your house filled. We are so thankful, Lord, for the many this morning in all of the services who rushed forward to pray and receive Jesus Christ in repentance. We thank you, Lord, that your house is filling up, and yet there's room for more. There's room for more. And there could be, Lord, some tonight who have gathered in this place, who are tired of the world, who are tired of the lies that this world has given them, who are tired of religion, and they want a dynamic, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They want to know God. They want to know that their sins are forgiven. We pray, Lord, that in this moment, it would be the deciding factor when they say yes to God and no to any other voice that would seek to hinder them from coming. So before we close the service, as you're meditating, thinking about your life, or praying for those whom you've brought, if you're here tonight and you're not sure about your relationship with God, you'd like to be sure, you'd like to come to the Father's feast, you're invited, but you must respond. You must respond. You must receive Jesus. That's what he said over and over again. You're not saved by being born into a nice family or a Christian home or by being enrolled in a church or being baptized as a kid or an infant, but by repenting of your sins and giving your life to Jesus Christ. He is the only way. Would you like to do that tonight? If so, I'd like you to raise your hand right now. I'd like you to raise your hand right now. I'd like you to raise your hand right now. I'd like you to raise your hand right now. I'd like you to raise your hand right now. I'd like you to raise your hand right now. I'd like you to raise your hand right now.